August 19th, 2018. Today, Brandon Delaciola will continue the Worship Wars series, and he will be talking about worshiping God through our service. Afterwards, check out our website at HoughtonBaptist.org. A lot of information there about the church and things going on at the church. Also, if it's been a long time since you've been to church, or you're kind of looking for a church, come and check out Houghton Baptist. I know you're going to love it. We look forward to seeing you. Come as you are. We do. Enjoy the podcast and have a great day. Morning, everybody. Let's pray. Father God, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit. We thank you for bringing us here this morning. We're grateful that we're able to come and to worship and fellowship with our brothers and sisters. Pray that you will help us to focus on you and only you. Remove from our minds any distractions and calm our restless hearts. We desire to hear from you. Holy Spirit, use me as your mouthpiece. Help me to say only what you want me to say. Open our ears and soften our hearts to be receptive to what you have to say. Amen. I'm excited about today. So I have the privilege of talking to you all about worshiping God through our service. Service, you may say. Don't we always worship God during our services? We do, but I'm not talking about Sunday morning service. I'm talking about how our service to God and to others is a form of worship. That our work, our jobs, our lives, and our very existence should be done to glorify God. In the past few weeks, we've been going through our Worship Wars series, and we've talked about how worshiping God matters. Worship is something that we can't ignore, and it's something that God deserves and that He demands of us. While He deserves our worship, it's also important for us to worship Him in order to continually remind ourselves of who God is and what He's done for us. We've also talked about worshiping God through our distractions, pushing through the things that try to pull us away from God and focusing on Him because He's more important than the other things we face in our lives. And last week, Pastor began to tell us about the seven Hebrew words that are used in the Bible for praise and how there are a multitude of ways that God has, through the Bible, commanded us to praise and worship Him. Now, all of these sermons have been wonderful, but in contrast to what I'll be talking about today, all what we've talked about so far has dealt with something we could consider vertical worship. Worship that's directly between us and God. So vertical worship can be singing, playing music, lifting our hands, rejoicing, dancing, shouting. The three Hebrew words from last week, yada, halal, and zamar. Vertical worship is thanking God for who he is and what he has done. It's what we do every Sunday during church. It's what we do when we sing along with songs in the car on the radio that uh, praise God. It's, It's what we do when we have worship that is factory direct from the creation to the creator. We even read in Luke's account of the life of Jesus that if the people of God grow silent in their worship of him, that even the rocks will cry out to God. 
in praise and adoration. This is vertical worship. All of creation crying out to its creator. God will be praised. So the difference in today is that I'll kind of be talking about something that you could consider as horizontal worship. Whereas vertical worship is directed from us straight up to God, horizontal worship is something that's directed from us toward other people. Now, I'm not saying that we worship those around us, but rather that we worship God by the way that we interact with and treat and serve those around us. Horizontal worship can be remaining steadfast in our beliefs when challenged. It can be dealing honestly in our business practices. It can be doing the right thing when it's a lot easier to not do the right thing. Horizontal worship is when we as God's creatures come to the full realization that everyone else we have ever met or ever will meet is also one of God's creatures, and we should treat them as such, regardless of how we are treated in return. Horizontal worship doesn't ask for anything in return. It's simply us serving out of, the, out of our hearts in response to the love that God has given us. Now, these two types of worship, horizontal and vertical, are summarized very nicely by Jesus when he says in uh, the book of Matthew that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, vertical worship, and love your neighbor as yourself, horizontal worship. Perhaps you've heard it this way, love God, love people. Love God, vertical, love people, horizontal. Now, this is a commandment from God, so we should take it seriously. Anything in the Bible we should take seriously, especially the things that God are quoted directly as God. So we should be eager and excited to share the love that God has expressed to us, to the people around us, whether or not they're Christians, whether or not we think they deserve it. In 1 John chapter 4, it says, Beloved, let us love one another, because love is of God. Everyone who loves is begotten by God and knows God. Whoever is without love does not know God, for God is love. What John's getting at with this passage here is that when you experience the life-changing love of God face-to-face, you can't help but share it with the world around you. The love of God is so strong and so powerful that we are compelled to act in like manner after we experience it. We need to treat others higher than ourselves, showing humility in all things, once again expecting nothing in return other than knowing that God is worshipped through it. Does that kind of living sound familiar? You may or may not know it, but among his other names, Jesus is known as the Suffering Servant. This is prophesied by Isaiah in chapter 53, and also in the book of Mark, we see Jesus as the suffering servant more than any of the other Gospels. Jesus' time on earth was not what people expected of him. He was not the powerful, conquering king that Jesus hoped would free them from the rule of Rome. We read in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, that for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus himself was a servant. And as followers of him, it only makes sense that we, too, should be servants. But what does it mean to be a servant? What are some of the aspects of Christian servanthood? The main text I'll be using today is Romans chapter 12. This chapter of the Bible is entirely dedicated to the idea of living our lives as an act of worship to God. And as it seems, as my usual sermons go, we'll be taking a walk through this chapter and seeing what we can pull out of it. So we'll start in Romans 12, verse 1 and 2. I'll be reading from NASB. You can go to Bibles under the seats or on the screens, on your phones. So Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. This is Paul writing to the church at Rome. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. 
And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. The first major point I'll be covering today is that being a servant, being a Christian servant, is not a position you fill or a job you clock into. It's a 24-7 way of life that looks to Jesus as our example. Paul begins the chapter with, therefore, which indicates that what follows is the consequence of something that preceded. So we need a little bit of context to fully understand why Paul is urging us to live our lives this way. This context is obtained by looking at the previous chapter in verse 30, where we read that just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy. So because of the mercy that God has extended to us, mercy that none of us deserved, Paul urges us to therefore present our bodies as living and holy sacrifices, acceptable to God. And even so, depending on which translation you have, your Bible may read that uh, instead of this is your spiritual service of worship, it may read that this is your reasonable service. It's our response. It's the only act that we can do that makes sense to receiving the mercy of God is then giving our lives to him and living accordingly. But the thing is, our sacrifice is not a one-and-done deal. In our culture, we're not necessarily familiar with the, the ritual of making a sacrifice to God. But the short version is that an animal is killed on an altar, consumed by fire, and that's it. Sacrifice is over. The presentation of a sacrifice has a definite beginning when the bull, sheep, bird, or whatever animal they were sacrificing is brought and killed on the altar, and it has a definite ending when the offering is fully consumed by the fire. But a living sacrifice? A living sacrifice is a bit different. The living sacrifice mentioned here also has a definite beginning when we accept Jesus as the Lord and Savior of our life. We receive the mercy of God and choose to follow him. Our living sacrifice also has a definite end, when our earthly lives are over and we die. So both a dead sacrifice and a living sacrifice have a beginning and an end, but the major difference here is the duration. Our living sacrifice is not over in the course of an hour or two or a day or weeks. It begins the moment we accept Jesus and ends at our last breath. Now, I'm not saying that we're guaranteed tomorrow. We, we never are. We should be thankful for God every day we wake up. But what I am saying is that for most of us, when, once we come to Jesus, what are we going to do for the next 10, 20, 50 years? Do we simply sit back and wait for Jesus to come, letting the world with all its needs, hurts, and pain pass us by? Not at all. We should be burning for Christ. You see what I'm trying to get at? The point isn't just getting saved. We can't just come to Jesus and then leave it there. Yes, salvation is important, but through the process of our sanctification, it's not the, only, it's not the end point. We can't just check that box and then live our lives without uh, focusing on God at all. That's why we're followers of Jesus. Like the song said, we come to Jesus. You know, come as you are, and Jesus will change you and work in you. But we don't just come to Jesus, we follow him. So, why is this important? Well, for one thing, our job description as a follower of Jesus is to go into the world and preach the gospel, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You may have heard this before. It's known as the Great Commission, and it's recorded in the Bible five times, once in each gospel and once in the book of Acts. Now, God created us to work and to serve. When God created Adam, we read in Genesis 2.15 that the Lord took the man, Adam, 
and placed him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. Now keep in mind that this happened before Adam and Eve sinned. It may seem like a strange spot in the sermon to bring up the creation story, but I have a reason for this this, uh, gentle interjection. And that's this, that work and service are not consequences of sin, but descriptions of duty. I'll say that again. Work and service are not consequences of sin, but they're descriptions of our duty. With this as our job description, we are tasked with telling people the truth about God and his Christ in the hope that some of them might be saved, to quote Paul from Corinthians. That job is hard enough, isn't it? Being consistent in our faith and talking to people about Jesus can be difficult. And if not difficult, it's at least time-consuming. It can take years, decades even, between the first time we talk to someone about Jesus and the moment they accept him as their Savior. So tell me, what are these people doing in the meantime? Any guesses? I'll tell you. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but when you are the lone follower of Jesus in a group of people, whether that be a workplace, classroom, sports team, you name it, but if you are the only true follower of Jesus in a group of people and they know it, you better believe that they're going to be watching and judging everything you do. It's who we are as people. If someone claims to follow something, we want to see if they actually follow it. We keep an eye on them. We want to see if they walk the walk. We want to see if they practice what they preach. And it's no different for us as followers of Jesus. And in fact, I think we actually face harsher scrutiny because of our faith. Author and speaker Brennan Manning says it like this. The single greatest cause of atheism in the world today is Christians, who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Whether you like it or not, if you claim to be a Christian, the world around you is constantly keeping tabs on what you do, constantly watching with ever-vigilant eyes to see if you practice what you preach. And that kind of terrifies me. And it, it should. We, we desire to be good representatives of Christ in this world, or at least we should. And I hope that you all want the same. But if I claim to be a follower of Jesus and I never do the things he's told me to do, do you think I'll be able to win people for Christ? Maybe. The gospel doesn't need us to convince people to believe in it. It's powerful in and of itself. But people do not appreciate hypocrisy. If the only difference between me and the world is that I claim to be a Christian, but I don't act like it, why would they ever change? It doesn't make any sense to just add another moniker to the list, add something else to keep tabs on when you can not do that. They won't. This is why we must live our lives as holy, acceptable, and living sacrifices. And that's why Paul continues in verse 2 to urge us not to become like the world. We need to change our way of thinking when it comes to service and work. And this change comes through the Holy Spirit who enables us, allows us, and empowers us to live a holy life. Now, holy doesn't mean perfect. It means set apart, sanctified, for a specific purpose. And that purpose for us is to live a life that pleases God, a life that looks different. And while we can't be perfect, you can be certain that we can be forgiven. And we are forgiven. By the grace of God, we can be living sacrifices, daily putting to death the sin within us that so desperately wants control over us. So now that we understand that by associating ourselves with Jesus, we are full-time, 24-7 servants, what are the services we do? What does a servant do? Well, for starters, a servant does the will of his master. Consider for a moment a father and a daughter. The father loves his daughter without reservation, giving all he has for her. Conversely, the daughter adores her father. She speaks highly of him and tells him daily how much she loves him. 
Now, for a moment, think of what happens when a father tells his daughter to clean up her room before dinner. It's just past lunchtime. The girl has several hours to do this. Dinner comes around. The father finds out that the room has not been touched, has not been cleaned. He asks his daughter, didn't I tell you to clean your room? To which the daughter responds, yes, you did tell me to clean my room, and I spent a lot of time thinking about it and memorizing it. You said, make sure you clean your room before dinner. And I thought about it, and no, I didn't clean my room, but I also didn't play with my toys. I was outside, and I pulled the weeds out of the garden. I still worked. I still did something. But did the daughter do anything the father disapproved of? Of course not. He's probably even a little bit happy that she went outside and did yard work, but the problem is that she didn't do what he asked. He wanted her to do one thing, and she did something else. It's like if I'm asked to mow the lawn, but instead I vacuum the carpet. It's not wrong, it's just not what was asked. It seems a little silly, but somehow the same way when it comes to the things of God. God has laid out commandments for us in his word that we as followers of Jesus are supposed to obey. And we take the time to read them, study them, we memorize Bible verses, and then we choose to not do what God asks, and instead we try to come up with something that seems like enough of a sacrifice to make up for it. That's not what God wants. In fact, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, we read that Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. Wording is a little funny there, but comes down to obedience is better than sacrifice. So, a servant obeys. Easy enough. Jesus himself said that my yoke is easy, my burden is light. But the thing about an easy yoke and a light burden is that we still have to put in some effort. A third attribute of Christian servanthood is self-denial for others' benefit. A servant inconveniences him or herself for the benefit of others. We don't always like everything we're asked to do. And it's just too bad. (laughs) As followers of Christ, we are to look to Jesus as the example for how to serve. And was everything that Jesus did while he was carrying out his ministry on earth convenient for him? Of course not. Was everything well-timed and easygoing and free from distraction? No. Jesus' time on earth was a life filled with rejection, scorn, and abuse. Jesus knew that going in, but he still did what the Father asked him to do. The night before he was crucified even, Jesus prayed, and I'm paraphrasing a bit here, but he prayed for a way out. But he didn't give God an ultimatum. Jesus ends his prayer with, not my will, but yours be done. Even when our service is inconvenient, we still serve. Not our will, but God's. So what does this mean for us? Outside of our Sunday morning church service, it can mean helping covering a shift for a coworker who needs a day off. It could be assisting someone who's on the side of the road apparently having car trouble. It could be as simple as holding a door for someone or driving someone around to get groceries or babysitting. Oh, but the thing with this is we need to do it without expecting anything in return. I've said that a few times already, but that's, that's really important. As servants, we aren't looking for pay. It's not something that we're hired to do. It's something that we do because God loved us. We should never serve with the intention of glorifying ourselves. Moving on to Romans 12, verse 3, we read that, For through the grace given me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. We know Paul is speaking to all of us. Everyone, says I say to everyone among you. There's no getting out of that. But what exactly is he telling us? 
Paul's talking about pride here. He's telling us that we need to be humble. After all, if the God we serve condescended from the glory of heaven to the lowliness of earth, we can surely take control of our opinion of ourselves and learn to serve our fellow man. And proceeding from that, Paul makes mention of the necessity of sound judgment. When we become haughty in our thinking and puffed up, we no longer are open to the ideas or suggestions of others. We overestimate our own skill, and most of the time this leads to poor judgment or poor choices that result in negative situations. Paul says that God has given to each of us a measure of faith. What exactly he means by a measure of faith is not entirely well defined right here, but it seems that we each have something different from God. We aren't all the same, and we should come to the understanding that there are some who do things differently or better than we can. This idea is reinforced further on in the chapter, where he says, For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly, if prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy, with cheerfulness. The analogy of the body of Christ to that of the human body is a common method that is used by Paul. And I think he used it so often because of its immediate relevance and clarity. Your body, my body, all of our bodies have a multitude of different parts. Hand, foot, arm, leg, eye, ear, nose, mouth, tongue, nose, bones, muscle, endocrine system, nervous system, cardiovascular. The complexity of the body is truly awesome. But the unity that is the body is all the more awesome given the diversity of its parts. Our bodies of flesh and bone would not function as necessary if it were entirely made of eyes or feet or hands. In the same way, the body of Christ cannot function properly if everyone is trying to do the same job. We need people to work in different departments of the church. Hospitality, custodial, groundskeeping, music ministry, children's ministry, youth ministry, college ministry, love inc., preaching team. I could go on. Our unity does not mean we have to have uniformity. Whereas quite the opposite. In fact, our diversity in our gifts and abilities is what allows us to function in unity. In a similar fashion to how the diverse parts of a human body work to form a unified whole, the various parts of our body work together for a common purpose. My hands do not fight against my legs. My stomach does not wage war against my lungs. In the same manner, the different parts of our church shouldn't be divisive and fighting against each other. We should be working together for a common purpose creating a community in a place where people come and see the love of Jesus and then leave from here and share that with other people. Moving on to verses 9 through 13, we see some more examples of how we are to perform our service. A little bit of attitude adjustment. It says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love, giving preference to one another in honor not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Your Bible may have the words let and be in italics. It usually means that the words that are in italics are contextually added by the translators because they're not present in the original. But in this case, I think the original gets the point across. Love without hypocrisy. It's more of a command, feels like. So, in other words, love genuinely. Love from the core of your being in sincerity and with caring. Don't put on a facade. 
Don't flash a smile at someone speaking empty words only to go begrudgingly do what they asked of you while talking badly about them. God sees our hearts, and he knows those feelings we harbor deep inside that we think no one else knows. And if we have these feelings, I know I have had them before, we need to give it to God and let it go. Forgive them. Paul knows this and continues in the chapter with verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Bless those who get on your nerves. Pray for those who push your buttons. Paul goes on in the chapter to quote Proverbs 22, where it is written that in blessing those who curse you and praying for your enemies and treating them kindly, you will heap burning coals on their head. It seems a bit violent, but it's more of an expression. (laughs) Having hot coals on your head would be painful to say the least. And when we have wronged someone and all they do is treat us better than we've ever treated them, it kind of drives us crazy. It doesn't make sense that anyone would repay evil with good or persecution with welcoming or hate with love. Yet that's exactly what God wants us to do. And going back just a few verses, um, let's look at verse 10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love, giving preference to one another in honor. The first part of this verse is pretty simple, pretty straightforward. We should harbor brotherly love for each other for no other reason than that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And even then, Paul isn't that specific. We should extend brotherly love to everyone we come into contact with on a daily basis. There's no reason that we should distribute the love of God with any preference toward one person or another. Second part of this verse, however, is one that I really enjoy. Give preference to one another in honor. This could be worded as honor one another above yourselves. Paul almost makes it seem like it should be a competition for who can honor each other more, who can do more for each other. Wouldn't that be the place to be, to live in a world where everyone desires to show honor to others above themselves, where we lay down ourselves in order to pick up another? a place where people are looking out for the needs of others above themselves and are ready and willing to sacrifice themselves for another's benefit? It sounds pretty good, but the best part about it is that it's not only attainable, but it's what the church really should look like. We should do all that we can to make the community we have here at Houghton Baptist, and even more so the body of Christ as a whole, to revolve around a culture that is based on the servanthood of Christ. And how can we begin to fully embrace this idea of a culture of humility, service, and love? Well, we can look to the book of Hebrews. In chapter 10, verse 24, we read, And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. We should encourage one another to this way of life. The author of Hebrews tells us that this is one of the defining aspects of the Christian church. We should be encouraging one another. However, you should notice that Paul says encourage and not nag. We need to be careful that the things we say incite one another to love and good deeds do not come across as pestering and condescending. And of course, the obvious behavior for one who encourages another to do good works is to do good works themselves. We should not be uh, hypocritical in our motivations. Now, there are so many other sections of Scripture that either talk about directly or display what it means to worship God with our service. We could look at the book of Daniel to see how we can worship God when we are forced to serve or work in an anti-Christian environment. We can look at the life of Jesus as an example for how to worship and serve when under direct opposition. We can look to the early life of David to see how we can serve when those around us won't. And we can look at the entirety of the book of Acts to see what it looks like to serve in a plethora of situations. Unfortunately, I do not have time to go through all of these. We could be here for hours. But I encourage you to have a look at some of these passages sometime this week.
Let us pray. Father God, I thank you for the examples that you have given us in your word, for how we are to worship you with our service. I thank you that your spirit not only changes our hearts and minds and ways of thinking, but empowers us to serve you through serving others. Help us to learn what it means to prefer others over ourselves. Teach us how we can encourage one another to love and good deeds. Reveal to us the ways that we have been successful in these areas, as well as the ways we have fallen short. Convict us of our selfishness and bring to light our pride. Holy Spirit, we ask again that you would move through us and in us and work in us to bring about the change in our lives that we need to glorify you. We are powerless to change without you. Bring to our remembrance these things as we go about our week, living for you, and continually remind us of the humility of Christ so that we may reflect and imitate that same humility. Thank you, and in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Hey, thanks for listening to the Hope Baptist Podcast. We appreciate your support. If you're looking for a church or it's been a while since you've been to church, why don't you come and check out Houghton Baptist? We certainly love to have you. You can come as you are. We do. Also, if you're interested in giving, you can give by text. Just send a text to 906-346-1317 and follow the prompts from there. Again, thanks for listening to the podcast and have a great day. Oh, 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 oh,